This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Uh, we're discussing the Haggadah, talking about Pesach. What's interesting is that Pesach, the Benish Chai says a beautiful idea. He says Pesach. Pesach is really, he says, two words. You know, we always, you know, the Torah used the word Pesach in the sense of Hashem passed over the houses. He, Pesach means to jump. But the Benish Chai says, split it into two words. Pesach. Pesach means a mouth speaking. The mouth that's speaking. Pe, mouth, sach, is talking, is speaking. Because the mitzvah of the night of Pesach, interesting, you know, we Jews love to talk. But unfortunately, when there's a time for the mitzvah to talk, we have to find out what to talk about. So it's not just speak whatever we want. We have to learn what to talk about. It's the mitzvah of Pesach. It's a mitzvah to talk on the night of Pesach, which is the mitzvah of Haggadah. The mitzvah of Haggadah, Haggadah is to tell the story of the coming out of Egypt to our children. And there's a big difference between the mitzvah of Haggadah and the mitzvah of, which applies every single night of the year, which is the mitzvah of remembering the coming out of Egypt. Every single night of the year, we read the third paragraph of the Shema. And that's the reason why the third paragraph of the Shema is a mitzvah at night, even though it, it consists of the mitzvah of Tzitzit, which does not apply at night because it also talks about the coming out of Egypt. We have to remember coming out of Egypt in the morning. We have to remember coming out of Egypt at the night. And uh, what's the difference? The rabbis asked, what is the difference between the remembering of the coming out of Egypt every night and the remembering of the coming out of Egypt on Pesach night? And the answer is on Pesach night, it's a dialogue. Every night, it's a monologue. Every night we talk to ourselves. We say the Shema to ourselves. You don't have to say the Shema to anyone else. It's for you to hear. It's a personal uh, affirmation of belief. We believe that God took us out of Egypt. And, but on Pesach night, it's a mitzvah of dialogue between generations. It's a mitzvah to connect the generations. The mitzvah of Pesach is the mitzvah of Haggadah. Talking Pesach, Haggadah, to teach our children, to tell our children, at least if a person has children around. You know, today with, uh, you know, it's much better today, thank God, in Israel. Things are open up. Baruch Hashem. Most people have got vaccines. Those who need the vaccines got vaccines. The numbers are going down. This year we can celebrate Pesach with our children. Baruch Hashem, our grandchildren. There are no restrictions. And therefore, we can do the mitzvah of Haggadah properly, which is just a speech, a dialogue between generations. We have to make them ask questions. The whole idea of the Haggadah is to have the children ask questions. And we have the format of four questions, but obviously the children can ask whatever questions they want. And in fact, we have to tell our children now. Now is the time for them to prepare their questions for us. Our children, our grandchildren, whoever are coming to the Seder, now is the time that they prepare their questions. They shouldn't just think last minute questions. They should prepare their questions. And we have to prepare the answers. That's the hard part. Sometimes the best answer is, I don't know, but let me find out for you. I'll ask the rabbi tomorrow. That's what my parents used to do. We'll ask the rabbi tomorrow. We'll find out for you. If we don't know, we'll find out for you. But it's very important to, for them to ask questions because when they ask questions, they get involved. When people don't ask questions, it's a sign they're not really involved. When they're, whether when they're asking questions, that means they're paying attention and they're getting involved. And therefore, the night of Pesach is a night of dialogue. We keep Judaism alive by dialoguing, by talking to the future generations. Judaism is a, is a religion where we welcome questions. A big difference between Judaism and other religions in Judaism, we welcome questions. In fact, if you learn the Gemara, the Gemara's first is a question. The first part of the Gemara is a question. So questions are 
not just optional extras, but they're welcome and they're essential to have a successful Haggadah. To have a successful Haggadah experience, it has to be a dialogue of questions and answers. And that is how Judaism is taught, with questions and answers. So it's interesting because the Haggadah is really a seder. It's in order. The Haggadah is not just a hodgepodge, even though it looks like a bit of a hodgepodge. It's actually very much in order. You know, in, in life, in our lives, in Judaism, everything is orderly. Everything is like a shulchan aruch. It's like a laid table. Just like the meal is a person prepares a proper meal. There's a first course, a second course, third course. So too our lives should be structured. Judaism is very much pro-structure. It's a very structured religion. It's a very structured way of life. And the rabbis say that a structured way of life is very important for a person's memory. A person can remember things if everything is done structured. If their house is a big mess, they're not going to remember where they put things. But if everything is put in its right place, it's an aid to the memory. It says Rabbi Kiva, he had a phenomenal memory. Why? It says his, his mind was like a store, a department store. Everything had a specific place to put everything. So a structured life is welcomed in Judaism. Judaism gives us structure in our lives, what to do early morning till the night. Everything is structured, how to eat, how to sleep. Everything has a structure. Everything has a code and because Judaism is a religion of structure. It gives us structure in life. Very important. People go crazy because they get up and they have nothing to do and they, they don't have structure in their lives. Judaism gives us structure in our lives. And straight away, you start off the seder. What does seder mean? Hey, one second. Seder, I just said the word, seder. Seder means order. Seder means structure. There's an order in the seder. There's a beautiful Rabbi Jacobowitz, you know. Rabbi Jacobowitz was the former chief rabbi of the British Empire. Before Rabbi Sachs, alaykum shalom. So Rabbi Jacobowitz, alaykum shalom. What's interesting is we were very, very fortunate. It's a high, was very, very fortunate because we were the last synagogue in the whole world that Rabbi Jacobowitz spoke at. It's amazing. It's amazing. Coincidence, it's amazing coincidence. I remember Jeremiah Jacobowitz came to our shul in, in Etzachayim uh, right at the beginning when I first came along, I think maybe one or two years after. I think Shalom Torah Academy had a, like a fundraiser over there. They brought him and we were one of the few shuls with a big auditorium. And we were very, very fortunate to hear from this great, illustrious Rabbi Jacobowitz, the former chief rabbi of, America, of England, of UK and the Empire and, and the Commonwealth. And he gave us a beautiful drasha about uh, cloning and uh, not cloning and then he he writes about the 14 parts of the seder and this is a beautiful i've given many times in its time and i'm sure a lot of people have heard it but let's just recap and make a video of this and we'll put it on uh, the, the uh, uh, torah anytime and this way people can see it over and over again and memorize this torah as i have memorized this torah so this is rabbi jacobitz who goes through the seder the seder means order, structure. He says this structure of the seder, which we sing before every seder, Kadesh Urchatz, Karpas Yachatz, Magid Rochsa, Motzi Matza, Maror Korech, Shulchan Orech, Tzavun Barech, Halel This beautiful uh, song, which I made out of the seder, this order of the 14 parts of the seder. He says, is the 14 parts of our lives. This is the order of a person's life. Kadesh. Kadesh means to sanctify. The first step, he says, before having children, 
the first step before getting married is Kiddushin. When a person gets married, it's called an act of Kiddushin. The man sanctifies his wife to him. It's a, it's a, a relationship built on sanctity. It's not built on chance. It's not built on frivolity. It's not built on lightheadedness. It's built on holiness. It's built, marriage is built, the bedrock of marriage is holiness. And to have a children, to bring children into the world, the first step to bring children into the world is Kadesh. And then when the child is born, it's interesting that a beautiful Benish Chai, the Benish Chai says, just like we wash our hands every morning, we should wash a baby's hands every morning. Imagine the baby wakes up, the mother takes the baby to the basin and she washes his hands carefully, just like we wash our hands. One, two, one, two, one, two, every morning. Kadesh, teach your child sanctity. Urchatz, wash his hands. Teach him sanctity from being a baby. It's amazing. Raise a child in Kirusha, in holiness, and wash his hands. Rachzka. Motzi, matzah. Okay, so Kadesh, Urchatz, Karpas. So Karpas is you dip, you dip the herbs. Uh, we started, we use celery, not potatoes. And we dip the herb in the salt water. We dip the herbs in the salt water. Kadesh, Burkhats, Karpas, Yachas. So Ben Shai says a beautiful thing. Karpas is a combination of three words. The prelude to the uh, going into Egypt was the dipping of the coat in the blood of the goat. It rhymes. Dipping of the coat in the blood of the goat. The brothers sold their brother. Can you imagine? They sold Yosef. And they ripped off his beautiful coat, a sign of uh, leadership. And they dipped this coat, this beautiful coat. They ripped it up and they dipped it in blood of goat. And they brought it to the father. And they said, what happened? Look what happened to your son. They didn't say what happened. And the father himself says, A wild animal ate up Yosef. He is ripped in pieces, just like his coat was ripped in pieces. Yosef is gone. Yosef is ripped in pieces, and Yaakov Avinu starts mourning for his son Yosef. So that's the Benish Chai says, Karpas is an allusion to the dipping of the coat of Yosef, just like we dip the parsley or the celery into salt water, which represents, the salt water represents the tears of Yaakov Avinu, and the Karpas is kaf for ketonet, pas for pasim, the coat of, of many colors, or the, the coat of fine linen, the Rashi says, and uh, the Resh is hayar the evil animal ate him up. So this, the karpas alludes to the sale of Yosef, which caused us to be in Egypt. It caused us to be living in Egypt. And that's a very important illusion. We raise our children, and raising children are easy. Raising children is with sweat and tears, which are represented by the dipping of the karpas in the salt water. Parents have to go through a kind of torture, torturous experience raising children. And King David says in Shira Malot, he says, If you sow with tears, one day you'll reap with joy. It's interesting. I don't know, but I think this is my theory. The kids that give us the most problems when they're young, eventually give us the most blessings when we're older. So I, that's my theory. I don't know. I'm just observing around me. And that's what I see. Sometimes you see these kids who are very, very smart. They're rascals. But eventually, when they grow up and they mature, they become the smartest kids, the most successful kids. I remember when I was in, teaching in school, <laughs> uh, I would tell the teachers, you know, the, the teachers would complain about certain kids. I say, you know, that kid's going to be a multimillionaire. And that teacher says, you know, I know. 
but it doesn't help me now because he's driving me crazy. But so it's interesting. So Karapas represents this dipping in the salt water, which represents the tears of, of parents raising children. Kadesh Rukhats, sanctify yourself, wash your children's hands, uh, raise them with tears, and then Karapas Yachats, break them away from yourself, send them to school. So we take the middle matzah, so the top matzah is the father, the middle matzah is the father, mother is the mother, the middle matzah is the kid. We break that middle kid into half. What does that mean? We make, break the kid, we don't break the kid, we break his time. We break the kid's time. The bigger piece is now part of the Afikoman, and that is now the piece that goes to school. Most part of the time, those kids go to school. The little part which is left between the two is the time the kids spend at home with the parents small amount of time with the parents. The major time now in little kids' life, I don't know about now in, in this situation with Zoom and everything, but now in Israel, the, the, kid, the schools are starting again, just in time for the vacation time, for Pesach, but they will start again, and, and schools all over the world will start again. Majority of time people, the kids will spend is with their schools, not with their parents. The small amount of time left between the two matzahs, the two big matzahs, is the time the kids spend at home. And Motsi, matzah, and what happens is the kid goes to school and then you got to find out what he learned. Motsi. Motsi is what he learned. Motsi, you pull it out of him. You got to pull it out of the kid. And the matzah is the kid now grows up and the kid goes to work. The kid has to earn his own living. Oh, that's the hard part. The kid has to learn their own living. They have to provide for themselves. They have to earn their daily bread. The matzah, which is the basic necessities of life, they have to go and earn. Motsi. We have to try and take out from them what they learned in school, which is very hard. Kids come back from school. You've got to ask them questions. You've got to give the Torah at the Shabbat table. That's where you get things out of the kids. Most kids don't want to speak about it. They come back from school and they, what do you learn in school? Nothing. I mean, they really don't want to talk to you about what they learned in school. It's very hard to get it out of them. But you've got to get out. Motsi, matzah, and then they go to work. They earn their daily bread. And you know what happens in the kid's life is suddenly maror. Things go sour. Some people lose their jobs, some people lose a relative, and it's a new experience for a kid experiencing bitterness. That's the maror in life. Maror in life is the bitterness a person experiences in life when they grow up and they mature and they experience certain bitter things. What do you do with the bitter things in life? So Rav Jacobitz says, amazing idea. He says, maror, what's following maror is korech. Korech is Put the maror between the matzot and make a sandwich. Take the good things in life and the bad things in life and put them together and make a sandwich because life is a sandwich. Life is good and life is bad and life, you have to take the ups and the downs and live with them. And that's the sandwich of korech. Take the good part and the bad part. We dip it in the nice, uh, fragrant, hopefully, uh, spices of the haroset. And it becomes really sweet. If we put it all together, make a sandwich out of life, you'll find that life is sweet with all the bitterness and all the bad and all the good mixed up together. It's not so bad. You have a person got to remember when things are going badly with the good times. When things are going well, they got to remember the bad times. They shouldn't get too high when things are going well and not to get too low when things are going bad because life is a sandwich. That's life. Life is good. Life is bad. That's the sandwich of life is, is the symbolized by the the sandwich, Hillel sandwich, the korech, which originally was a wrap. That's what korech means, is to wrap. And that's a proof that the matzah that they had in those days was a soft matzah, which they used to wrap the maror. And, the, and in those days, the korem pesach as well. It was like a lafa with uh, 
what's it called? The, the, you, you slice the lamb and, uh, and that, that's a laffa. That's shawarma. The shawarma sandwich. Yeah. Shawarma sandwich. The original shawarma sandwich was invented by Hashem on Pesach for the Jews to eat. The shawarma sandwich. Yes, exactly. So that was the, uh, what they ate when they had the Koran Pesach. The Hillel shawarma sandwich. It wasn't the Earl of Sandwich who invented sandwiches. It was Hillel who invented the shawarma sandwich of the, of the Halal, of the... Uh, Okay, so that's the sandwich of life. It's interesting, people don't realize the sandwich of life. We eat the sandwich, remember, when you eat the sandwich, remember, it's matzah, which is not that bad. It's maror. It's a bit of haroset. That's life. That is how we teach our children to adapt to life. Life has good parts. Just, that's, that's a lecture you know, hear, people hear before they get married, hopefully. If they have good marriage counselors, that there's high parts of marriage, low parts of marriage. Marriage is a sandwich. Marriage is a shawarma. Uh, sandwich, uh, laffa of uh, combination of good, bad, better, and worse, and everything. And we have to we have to live with it. We have to teach our children to live with it. Korech, shulchan orech. And then hopefully the person grew up, he went to work, he's experiencing good things, bad things, and now he got married, and now he has shulchan orech, a table full of children around the table. That's the biggest bracha a person can have is to have a person sitting at his table with his children around the table or his grandchildren around the table. The biggest bracha a person can experience in life is shulchan orech, something which we have to yearn for, something which we have to remember. If it happened to us, we have to remember it with always a good smile on our faces when our little kids would sit around, <laughs> sit around our table. I remember my life. <laughs> Maybe sometimes we don't appreciate when we have it. Uh, now I appreciate, you know, little, see little kids, their eyes shining, sitting around the Shabbat table. Oh, it's such a beautiful spectacle. Only trouble is we couldn't take pictures of <laughs> Shabbat. But a person could try and remember it. And that's a person got a year for that time where the children or the grandchildren or Halafai, the great-grandchildren, will be sitting around the table. And that is a big bracha, that shulchan orech. Safun. So what happens? Safun. Hidden. Hidden, you know. Some people, they hide them. They hide the Afikoman. We, we wrap it up. We put it under the tablecloth. It's Friday custom. As Ashkenazi make a whole thing about hiding it and the children finding it, just keep the kids awake, to alert, to hear the seder. So Safun, what is Safun? The hidden part inside the child who went to school is now coming out when he's an adult and now he's a father and now he's to teach his children. So he has to teach his own children and therefore what he learned when he was a kid that Safun is now coming out. Amazing, Safun. Barek. And then a person has to give Birkat Amazon. So Rav Jacobit says, Amazon is not just when you see your children sitting around your table, he says, Barech is, see, grandchildren, Barech is Amazon. When you say Amazon, after you have grandchildren, you say, wow, I'm so lucky I have grandchildren. And the best part of grandchildren are, they come, they visit you, and then you can send them back home. When you need to change diapers, you can send them back. Sapun <laughs> Barech. Halel, that's Halel. Halel is when you have Baruch Hashem. A person says, you know what, Baruch Hashem had a good life. I have children, I have grandchildren. Now I can praise Hashem with a full heart. Baruch Hashem. A person who reached that age, a person can praise Hashem. But the truth is we have to praise Hashem all the time. Why? Because we have to praise Hashem for everything He did, not just for us. We have to praise Hashem for He did all the generations till now. Because we are all dependent. If the previous generations were not successful, we wouldn't be here today. So we have to praise Hashem. That's what we do. And now Hallel on uh, Haggadah night, we praise Hashem for all the different generations. Every generation from the time of Abraham Avinu, Abraham Avinu survived, and uh, Yitzhak, Yaakov, and the, the, 
the children and the grandchildren, great grandchildren go to Egypt and we survived over there. Hashem took us out from Egypt. So it's beautiful. Say Hallel on Haggadah. Thank Hashem for all the miracles he did for us right through the centuries. Hallel is a beautiful word. That's a praise. Hallel is a praise to God for all the things. We have to appreciate everything. And it's interesting because before that we say Dayenu. Day, Dayenu. It's enough. It's enough. It's enough. What do you mean it's enough? It's enough what? And the answer is we would praise Hashem even if he didn't do the whole list. Every single thing he did would be enough to praise him, enough to praise him, enough to praise him. That's what I say. Be enough to praise him. We owe Hashem many debts of gratitude. I remember my life growing up. I was a little kid. I can't believe that little kid is what I am today. I just can't believe. I said, Hashem, how did you make that little kid? The nothing little kid. Thank God. for Hashem, Hashem helped me in my life so much. I was going to appreciate how much Hashem helps them to reach what they can reach and what they can do. Whatever it is, Hashem help, helped us, helps us tremendously in our lives. And Dayenu, if he would just help me up to here, then it would be enough. Up to here, would it be enough? Up to here. But he helps us every single day, every single second. Hashem helps. Hashem. Hashem should keep helping us and helping Klal Israel, helping the Jews all over the world. Hashem to be better in every way, which we're going to talk about. Okay, so Halel, and the highest level we can reach, any human being can reach. Is Niritza. What is Niritza? Niritza is to get God's housekeeping seal of approval that it was acceptable by Hashem. That is the greatest level we can reach, and we'll never know until we meet Hashem in person. Bezrat Hashem, uh, not too soon. I'd may have a stream after 120 years. We'll meet Hashem, and Hashem will either smile at us, Bezrat Hashem, Hashem will smile at us. I don't take this literally. Uh, but uh, just for that uh, seal of approval, we need that good house. That's Nirza. Nirza is, we're praying at the end of the Haggadah. Hashem, please accept our service to you. Please accept what we did. This Haggadah, the Seder that we did, Nirza should be acceptable before you. Anyway, that is the level of our life, the 14 parts of our life, the Seder, 14 parts of our life. Very, very interesting. Anyway, let's just move on and talk about some symbolism of the night of Pesach. Very, it's full of symbolism. So number one is matzah. Matzah is a tremendous dichotomy. Because on one hand, matzah is the bread of freedom. And on the other hand, the matzah is the bread of slavery. It's amazing. The same thing. The same thing is the bread of slavery. And the same food is the bread of freedom. Why? How can that be? It's, it's very, it's, it's only Judaism. Only Judaism have these confusing messages. The matzah is the bread of slavery. That's what they fed us in Egypt. You know, it's interesting. There was the famous rabbi, the Abraham Ibn Ezra. Um, from the golden age was Spain. And he's one of the commentators on the, on the homage. Abraham Ibn Ezra, very famous. He wrote many songs in our songbook, which we, we sing on Shabbat, Abraham Ibn Ezra. And uh, he says he was very, very poor. He was very, very poor and he had very bad luck. His luck was so bad, even if he be became an undertaker, he said, people would stop dying. Maybe he should have become an undertaker. People would stop dying. That's not so bad. So anyway, his luck was so bad, he says, he went, he visited different countries and he went to India somehow and they put him in jail. And in jail, they fed him chapatis. Now, chapatis are flat bread, a soft, flat bread. He said, just like matzah. And he says, now I know why the Egyptians fed the Jewish slaves matzah because it takes a long time to digest. It stays stuck in the system and a person doesn't feel hungry for a long time. So that's the reason why we ate the matzah in Egypt. They fed us matzah, very cheap food, very it's like stale bread and therefore it's very hard food to digest and therefore it was very easy to feed the slaves. 
you feed them a little bit and they'll be full for a long time. So that's the, the, the bread of affliction on the one side. And uh, it's also the bread of freedom. Why? Because when we get free, it's interesting, freedom comes in a flash. People are not going to be ready for the Mashiach. We're not going to be ready. Why? He's going to come so fast. When the Mashiach comes, it's going to be lightning. It's going to be like a bolt of light. It's going to come so fast that we're not ready for it. You know, there's a famous story, the Brisker Rav. It says uh, he couldn't sleep at night. He tells one of his daughters, he says, please, please. He said, I can't sleep. The button fell off my Shabbat coat. So please stitch it for me. I can't sleep. So why can't Daddy? Why? What's it? Okay, it's not Shabbat. It's only Sunday. So I fell off. I'll stitch it before next Shabbat. He said, No, no, no. I'm going to wear this coat to greet Mashiach. Can you imagine Mashiach comes now? I'm not going to be ready. My coat, my button is off my coat. I mean, there was a rabbi in, in Lakewood. He was the Rachvogel. He was the Mashkiach of Lakewood. He says he would keep a box packed under his his bed every <laughs> just in case Mashiach would come. Ready with a suitcase to move to Israel when Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes, person won't have time to pull up their socks. Boom. Mashiach is going to be here, Bezrat Hashem. And uh, so uh, Bezrat Hashem will all be there when Mashiach comes, but let's try and prepare now, Bezrat Hashem, for Mashiach to come. Because when it comes, it's going to be so fast, it's going to be like the blink of an eye. Yeshua Hashem Kecheref Ay, David Amirach says, the salvation of God is going to be like the blink of an eye. So the bread, the, the matzah represents two things. It represents freedom and it represents slavery. It's amazing. Slavery and freedom is the same thing. Why? Sometimes it's a frame of mind. Sometimes slavery and freedom is a perception. Sometimes a person feels they're slaves. For example, a person has a very heavy loaded job. He feels like a slave. But when he loses the job, he says, you know what? I wish I had that job. Sometimes freedom can be slavery, and sometimes slavery can be freedom. It's an amazing concept, a really amazing concept. It's amazing because, you know why? Because when the Jews got out of Egypt, freedom is not the goal. Freedom is not the goal. Coming out of Egypt is not the, is not the goal, you know? Where, you know the, when the, for the Russian Jews, there were big uh, demonstrations in America, which really helped. And the Russian Jews got out of Russia, and Russia freed the Jews. Let my people go, but they forgot what the next part of the Pasuk was. The Torah says, Let my people go and serve me, Hashem says. Not just let my people go. Freedom for the sake of freedom is worthless. Freedom for the sake of, of religion, of serving Hashem, that's valuable. So what is freedom for? What is true freedom? We have to talk about this when we get to Shavuot, because that is really a Shavuot uh, question. So something to talk about the Seder. Why is the same bread, same matzah, the bread of slavery, and why is the same matzah the bread of freedom? Amazing. So the answer is we have to figure out. Slavery or hard work sometimes is freedom. And sometimes freedom is slavery. A person's on drugs or some kind of addict and he's free. But he's not really free. He's a slave. He's a slave to his passion, slave to his desires. Unfortunately, we see this today. Society is breaking down because of the freedom turns to slavery of addiction or other kinds of slavery. So that's number one, matzah. matzah. Okay, but it's a good question to debate at the Seder. What is matzah? Matzah represents two things. Matzah also, the rabbis tell us, represents the ego. The ego of a person. A person has an ego. And uh, hametz is ego. Why hametz puffs up? If you don't let the hametz puff up, you'll see it's just a flat piece of bread. Matzah. So matzah represents bread with no ego. Matzah is the antidote to the yetzer hara. The Yitzhara is the fat ego, which is chametz, 
it causes the, the bread to swell. That's just a symbolism of the of the ego, of the yetzerah, of the evil inclination. That's ego. That's inside all of us. And when Pesach, we have to try and figure out a way to lessen our egos. How much conflict in the world are based on egos? How much marriage conflicts are based on egos? How much sibling rivalry is based on ego? Everything, all the disaster in the world are based on ego. Ego is the roots of disaster. And that's what the matzah teaches us. That's what the moral, one of the moral lessons of matzah is. Remember to control your ego. Number two, more or less, the matzah. The importance of time. What makes matzah hametz is the time factor. The importance of time. Don't waste time. Every second of our lives adds up to what our lives are. It's so hard not to waste time. It's so hard. This, this is one of the hardest things to control, is to control the wastage of time in our lives. And today we have more and more things to distract our attention. That uh, just at the, at the click of a finger, we can be in different places of the world, different parts of the world, different thoughts. Uh, we can waste our lives away so easily today, just so easy. So the matzah teaches us the importance of time, because if the time factor is more than 18 minutes, boom, matzah all of a sudden becomes hamet. So that's a time factor in our lives. We have to remember the lessons, the moral lessons of matzah. Number two, maror. Maror, we talked about bitterness. The slavery in Egypt was bitter. What's interesting is the lettuce today is not that bitter, not that bitter. And uh, but it's the longer it says the longer you leave the maror in the ground, if you use uh, lettuce, the longer it's left in the ground before it's harvested, the more bitter it gets. Why? Because the bitter flavor comes from the bitterness in the ground, comes from the minerals in the ground, which add bitterness into the leaves of the harose. So that's where the bitterness comes, and that's what's exile. Exile is compared to lettuce. The longer you are in the exile, the worse the exile gets. And this has been true in every single exile we have experienced around the world. The longer we've lived in a country, the worse it gets. It never gets better. It always gets worse. There's more anti-Semitism. There's more hatred. There's more uh, violence. And then eventually it spit us out. So that's been the record so far. That's the lesson of Maror. It starts off by being not so bad. But the longer it's left in the ground, the longer the exile lasts, the more bitter it gets. And that's something which we have to remember. Everyone lives in exile. The longer the Jews live in exile in certain places, the worse it gets. And that's been our experience everywhere in the world. So that is the maror. Then we have on the table, we have a beta. We have an egg, a hard-boiled egg. Why do we have a hard-boiled egg? Because in those days, it wasn't just the korban pesach they had to bring, pascals at the sacrifice, but also they had to bring a hagiga. Hagiga is the festival offering which most of the meat was taken home and eaten at home. So on, on the first night of Pesach, we had two meats on the table. They had the meat of the Pesach, which was eaten right at the end of the meal. Just like today, we're meant to have the Afikoman, which symbolizes the Koran Pesach. We eat at the end of the meal. And then before that, we had to fill their stomachs with the main course item was the Hagiga. Today, we don't have any Hagiga, but it's symbolized on the table by a hard-boiled egg. So the question is, why do we symbolize the sacrifice of meat for a festival with a hard-boiled egg? And the answer is, number one, we don't have a temple today. Since we don't have a temple today, the, one of the things we eat for a mourner is a hard-boiled egg. We're mourning for our temple. So even on Pesach, we remember the lack. The egg really remembers, reminds us of the lack of the Korban Hagigah, and not just that, but the lack of the temple. It's a sad occasion. We have these reminders of uh, 
previous days gone by where we had all these offerings and we could eat meat of the offerings. And here we are today, we have nothing, no meat. What do you have? You have a hard-boiled egg. And that's one symbolism, the destruction of the temple on Pesach, on the Seder night. And number two is Jews are like hard-boiled eggs. Why? Because the more you boil us, the harder we get. The more you boil a Jew. In other words, the more laws you make against Jews, the harder the Jews get and the more they resist. The less laws you make against Jews, the more they uh, sort of lose their defense mechanism. You see this in America today, melting pot. How many Jews are lost in the melting pot? Nearly a million Jews gone, probably more. And intermarriage going over 50%. So that's the problem with, they're not boiling us enough. Maybe they'll start boiling us. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it does cure the assimilation problem. Boiling us, unfortunately, like hard boiled eggs, we survive in Jews are tough. The more you boil them, the tougher they get. The less you boil them, the weaker they get. So the hard-boiled egg represents a few things. Number one, it represents the destruction of the temple. It reminds us of the Korban Hagigah. And also reminds us that the more you boil us, the tougher we get. Karpas, we talked about. Karpas is symbolism of the coat of, uh, we said, Ketonet Pasim, the coat of Joseph, which was dipped in the blood. So today we dip the karpas into salt water that represents the tears of Yaakov, Avinu, Jacob, cries for Joseph. When a person uh, has karpas, remember, it reminds us the karpas is today's Friday. We use celery, ashkenazi, potatoes, or other kinds of vegetables. And the reason why we do this is for the question, for the kids to ask questions. Why, daddy, why are you dipping? Why are you dipping twice tonight? We never dip at all. Why are you dipping twice tonight? Right, they're dipping the carpas, you're going to dip the maror. What's going on, daddy? Why are you doing these things? They're strange things. Yeah, that's one of the questions in the Haga in the Manishtana. So, the carpas is a vegetable, reminds us of spring. Pesach is spring, Pesach is harvest, Pesach is the spring, which reminds us of the spring of our lives. You know, when we left Egypt, it was the spring of national life, the Jews became a national nation in Egypt. Very, very surprised. Our national holiday is not the 4th of July, but it is Pesach. It's interesting how all the national holidays are modeled after our Pesach. The idea of a barbecue. Boy, where did this idea of a barbecue come from? And the answer comes from the Torah. The Torah says, celebrate Pesach with a barbecue. Boy, with a barbecue and a lafa and a, a shawarma sandwich. And it became a burger. Today it became a burger. Wow, this McDonald burger, it came from us. It came from, this is the source of the burger. This is also the shawarma. This is the source of barbecuing on a national holiday, taking this uh, sheep or the lamb or the kid goat. It could be either a lamb or a kid goat and having a barbecue to celebrate national freedom in the land of exile. That's amazing. Celebrate freedom in exile. Why do we celebrate freedom in exile? Because as soon as Pharaoh told us we could leave, which was at midnight, that was really the freedom. That's when the freedom really started. The freedom started as soon as we were told to leave. Even though we never left till the next morning, freedom started as soon as we were told to leave when we were eating our uh, barbecue. That's interesting. So that's the barbecue we have. The karpas is spring. The spring of Judaism was Pesach. And Pesach falls in spring, has to fall in the spring. And that's why if Pesach is going to be a bit earlier than spring, we have we add an extra month, a leap month called Adar Bet to push Pesach into the spring. Pesach has to be in the spring. Why? Because it represents the rejuvenation of Judaism, the rebirth of Judaism after the exile, after the bondage. And we have to remember that when we eat the karpas, spring vegetable, it's a spring vegetable, and it's a spring 
of uh, Judaism. This is the spring of our lives. Also, it's a spring for us. We have to do spring cleaning, not just physical spring cleaning, but also spiritual spring cleaning. We have to prepare ourselves. This is another kind of new year. Nisan is another new year. Four new years in Jewish calendar. Nisan is one of them. Pesach is symbolized spring cleaning, new beginnings. This is when our, our national holiday was Pesach. And therefore, we have to celebrate, remind ourselves with this vegetable that it's a new part of our lives. We have to ask ourselves, what are we trying to grow in our garden of our lives? What are we trying to grow in our lives? What are we, how are we fertilizing our lives? Are we weeding our garden? Are we watering our garden? That's our children, our children, our garden. Our children are our saplings. Our children and our grandchildren are what we're going to leave behind us. Are we watering them? Are we cultivating them? We, when we remember the Karpas, we remember that. It's worth it. It's worth investing the time and the tears. <laughs> Today, I just got the bill for my uh, grandchildren's uh, school. So just, this is the uh, tears. We celebrate, we invest with tears, and we're going to celebrate with joy. We celebrate with joy. So four cups of wine. This is interesting, very fascinating. It's interesting how Judaism revolves around wine. Why does Judaism, all things, give wine such importance and the answer is, if you remember what happened with wine, it's interesting because it's a tikkun. Drinking wine in a holy manner in Judaism is very, very advisable. Every kiddush, every marriage, every baby naming ceremony, every brit, every, uh, brit milah, every pidyon uh, ben, every time we do kiddush, havdalah, everything is wine, 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 wine. What's going on? And the answer is, this is a big tikkun. Drinking wine is a big tikkun. Number one, for who? Adam Harishon. The Gemara says one of the opinions of the Etzadah, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was the grapevine. The grapevine. Here we are. Adam Harishon. He drank wine. He got drunk. And he ruined everything for us in history. And that was the first sin. Hashem says, don't drink from the vine till Shabbat. And he did it before that. He, he drank the wine before. That's number one. Noah. Noah, it says, after the flood, he comes out of the ark. First thing he does, he plants a vine. And he gets drunk. And he's in his tent. He's rolling around in his tent. And his sons have to cover him. So something happened over there. I'm not going to go into right now. But uh, Noah failed also with wine. And thirdly, Lot, Lot had his daughters, he got drunk, they made him drunk totally, and he sinned with his daughters, and that's the third time. So wine has very bad connotations, and every time we, so the rabbi said, you know what, we have to sanctify wine. So that's why kiddush and wine are related. Every time there's a kiddush, every time there's sanctification, any time of this, the special ceremonies of life, they're all done over wine, it's interesting. And on Pesa, we have four cups of wine. Four cups, not just one cup, but four cups of wine. And a person's going to be very careful on Pesach. Definitely do not get drunk on wine. So if you can't drink the wine, dilute it with grape juice or just have grape juice. If you can't tolerate wine, you're going to get drunk. I've actually seen a seder in a hotel. I used to, when I was a kid in Yeshiva, I had no place to go for Benaz money. So I actually went to, to work in a hotel for Pesach. And it was one of the Toughest experiences of my life because I've never worked so hard in my life. And I used to sleep in a bathtub because all the rooms were taken in the, in the hotel. And I slept in a bathtub. They put a mattress in the bathtub. You imagine sleeping in a bathtub. That's Pesach. I really experienced servitude. My Pesach was servitude. And when Pesach was over, Baruch Hashem, boy, freedom, freedom. But anyway, in the, in the hotel, all the chutz became had to celebrate two days, two days Yom Tov. 
everyone else, all the Israelis had one day Yom Tov. So the first day, they finished all the grape juice. And the second day, they had the best wine left over. And I, everyone was drunk. Boy, by the second cup of wine, they were gone. Even the waiters were walking around. Uh, I don't know. They were all drunk as well. Yeah, good wine. And so a person definitely do not get drunk on Pesach night. Make sure, even though it's a mitzvah to have four cups of wine, number one is you don't have to drink the whole cup. You have to drink the majority of a cup every time. And that's why it's good to have small cups or a vit, three ounces for Sephardim, maybe six ounces for Ashkenazim, and drink the majority of the cup. And this is where you fill your mitzvah drinking whole cup. So there's no mitzvah to have the whole cup, the majority of a cup. Don't get drunk. But what's the reason for the wine? And the answer is it's a tikkun for the sin of Adam. It's a tikkun for the sin of Noah with wine, and tikkun for the sin of Lot with wine. So therefore, no, what we do is we take the wine, we sanctify the wine. Every time we sanctify, how do you sanctify wine? And the answer is by not getting drunk when you drink it. Very simple. By using it for good reasons, for mitzvah. And that's what we're going to do on Pesach. Use the wine for a good reason, for sacred reasons. And that is the biggest tikkun. And uh, that's a very important idea. The other reason why we have four cups of wine the rabbis tell us is there's two other reasons. One reason is because the four lishanot of Yula. There are four different aspects of redemption. Four different aspects of redemption. The Pasuk says the four different psukim, four different verses in the Torah, four different languages. Vehotzeti, I will take out. Vehitzalti, and I will save. I saved. Vegaalti, and I redeemed. Vilakati, and I took out. So four different languages of redemption. Number one is Vehotzeti. I took out the I saved the Gaalti and I redeemed the Lakati and I took I took Israel for myself, for my, my people. So these four languages of redemption, every time we have here one of these languages, we raise our cup of wine to Hashem. So we're saying Lachaim to Hashem, thank you, Hashem. We raise our cup to you. We're praising you, Hashem, for these languages of redemption. You, you redeemed us in four different ways. So the question is, what are these four different ways? How did Hashem redeem someone? How do you redeem someone in four different ways? That is very, very important. There must be four, if to redeem someone in four different ways, there must be four aspects of slavery. And this is something which we have to ask ourselves. Are we slaves? How are we going to be freed by Pesach? In what way are we slaves? That's the question. A person could be a slave to their cell phones. A person could be a slave to their computers. A person could be a slave to the internet. A person could be a slave to uh, drugs, all kinds of addiction. A person could be a slave to TV programs. I don't know. A person could be slaves. When you're a slave, a person feels, you know what? I know I have no choice. This is my habit. Habit is a kind of slavery. Habit is a kind of slavery. So on Pesach is a time to try and figure out. So a person is in the habit of speaking Lashonara. That's a slave. He's a slave to Lashonara. A person is in the habit of doing bad things. It's a slave in that situation. We have to try and free ourselves. This is, a, this is freedom. Freedom is freeing ourselves from our own habits, our bad habits, freeing ourselves from our bad addictions, and try and Pesach to be free. So can anyone be free? That's the question. Can anyone be really free? So on Pesach, we toast Hashem with four cups of wine corresponding to the four languages of redemption used by the Torah to describe our freedom from Egypt. So there are four kinds of freedom. There must be four kinds of slavery. So the, number one, the easiest kind of slavery to think about, and this is how the Haggadah starts off. There's a big debate in the Gemara, Rav and Shmuel. You start off with the good things in the Haggadah, or you start off with the bad things in the Haggadah? And the answer is, we follow the opinion that says we start off with the bad, and we end off with the good. You always want to end off on a good note. 
We always want to end the parasha on a good note. We always want to end on Aliyah on a good note. We always want to end the Haggadah definitely on a good note. So we start off with the bad and we end off with the good. So what is the bad in the Haggadah? So number one is Abadim Hayinu Lekarov Mitzrayim. We're slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. That's physical slavery. Physical slavery is one of the slaveries, one of the four types of slavery explicitly mentioned in the Haggadah. Abadim Hayinu Lekarov Mitzrayim. We were slaves. Physical bondage. Physical bondage, obviously, Hashem, safety, I took you out from Egypt. Hashem redeemed us from the slavery of Egypt, the physical slavery. Number two is of uh, our forefathers were idol worshippers. Of their avodazara, avayyavateinu, whoa, 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 forefathers. Who is, which forefather was an idol worshipper? So Haggadah tells us, Terach avi Abraham vavi Nahor. Terach, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, who was Abraham's brother. Abraham had two brothers, Nahor and Haran. And Terach and Nahor were both idol worshippers. They're both idol worshippers. That is the second kind of slavery, which is spiritual slavery. Spiritual slavery. And eventually we got out of the spiritual slavery as well. Till we got the Torah, we got out of spiritual slavery. So Hashem took us out. He saved us from the spiritual slavery of Egypt as well. He took us out from this land of idolatry, tremendous idolatry. So the Jews were on the 49th level of defilement practically gone, practically totally assimilated into Egyptian culture, totally assimilated to the Egyptian gods, totally idol worshippers, and Hashem saved us from this idol worship, which is the second kind of slavery, which is spiritual slavery, spiritual slavery. So we toast Hashem. Thank you, Hashem, for redeeming us from spiritual slavery, from superstitious practices, from divination, from astrological predictions, from soothsaying and magic and witchcraft. All these are Spiritual slavery, the real Rambam is very strict on this, not to be, a Jew should never be superstitious. Some things that non-Jews do, like the 13th of the month, it's very bad, 13 is a bad number. Who doesn't say no, 13 is a very good number. We have the 13 attributes, we have uh, 13 is the gematria of the word echad, one. 13 is the gematria of the word ahava, love, beautiful. 13 is a very good number. To be superstitious is not to be Jewish. It's, it's part of the witchcraft system. It's part of the idolatry system. In fact, Ramon says that's how the ancient rulers lo- ruled their kingdoms. They made all their subjects very superstitious, and then they ruled them by superstition. Very simple. If you do this, it's going to cause uh, this, and if you do this, it's going to cause that. And they really believed it, and it was psychosomatic. Anyway, so spiritual slavery, Baruch Hashem, he redeemed us from spiritual slavery. He gave us a religion which is not in the least superstitious, according to Rambam. It's very rational religion, and super, not just rational, but it's super rational. It's God's rational. And then we have what's called emotional slavery. Emotional slavery is, the Jews were not released for emotional slavery, it says, until they saw their dead masters at the seventh day of Pesach, at the Red Sea, or the, or the Reed Sea. It's already the Reed Sea, but it's, uh, they left out me. Some, some guy made a mistake when he copied it. The Reed Sea, Yam Suf. Suf is a reed. The Reed Sea became the Red Sea. And uh, it's a mistake, but it's continued. Um, and uh, that the Reed Sea and the Red Sea, they saw their dead masters. So the emotional attachment they had to the masters was lost over there. Um, but still, it's a mental framework that they couldn't release. It took them 40 years to get over the mental slavery, the fact that they were slaves at one time. And they had masters at one time that have such an impact on them that they were subservient. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to the land of 
Well, they thought plenty. They were such mental slaves. It took a whole generation, a new generation, 40 years in the desert, a whole generation had to die out until they got over these four kinds of slavery. So the physical slavery, the spiritual slavery, the emotional slavery, and the mental slavery. Emotional slavery is the irrational attachment to various things. So too much attachment could lead to codependency, could be destructive. And that's why Torah emphasizes a person when they grow up to leave their parents and cling to their spouse. Don't break the emotional ties of one's youth. Move on with your life. Grow up. Mental slavery, habit. is a form of mental slavery. We're all creatures of habit. When the brain gets accustomed to thinking along a certain path, after a while, a person is unable to do anything else. Addiction is probably the worst form of mental slavery. So these are the four kinds of slaveries. And that's why on Pesach, we have four cups of wine to celebrate four kinds of freedom, which we have to try and work on. Physical freedom, as Rabbi said, we all have freedom physically. And then spiritual freedom. That's, that's very hard to try and be spiritually free in our lives. And mental freedom and emotional freedom, as Rabbi said, we all get to that level. We're not habituated to any bad habits, no addictions, no emotional attachments, which are bad for us. And uh, so that's very, very important. So Haggadah is critical. The Seder is critical for order in our lives and, uh, and bring order to our structure, to our lives. So now, in the Haggadah, one of the, the first line of Haggadah is, Ha-Lachman, yeah, this is the bread of affliction. We said the matter of both the bread of affliction and the bread of freedom. Which our forefathers ate. In the land of Egypt. And then we have an invitation. Whoever is hungry, please come and eat. Whoever needy, come and have Pesach. Interesting. So we find there's poverty, there's hunger, the different aspects in this invitation. We're inviting the poor. And you know, that's the reason why it's the only part of the Haggadah which is in Aramaic. And the reason why it's in Aramaic is. Because Aramaic in those days, when the Haggadah was instituted, was the main language of all Jews around the world. Because the Jews in Israel had come back from Babylon. They came back speaking, not Hebrew, but come back speaking Aramaic. And just like the Jews in Spain spoke Ladino, the Jews in uh, Germany spoke Yiddish, and the Jews in Babylon spoke Aramaic. That's why the Talmud is written in Aramaic. And that's why this first line of the Haggadah is in Aramaic, because that was the spoken language understood by every Jew. And therefore, you want to invite the poor people. You don't speak to them in Hebrew. They want to understand what you're saying. So the language chosen was Aramaic. So what is going on over here? What's going on? Why are we inviting poor people to our homes just before the Seder? It's interesting. This is a very, very generous aspect of Judaism. And that is, how should a person celebrate something? And the answer is that there's no poor people. Amazing Rambam. Rambam says, if you celebrate on Yom Tov with no poor people in your house, you know, there's three types of people that a person should invite. Number one, it says, Yatom. A Yatom is an orphan. Almana. And the widow. Orphans, widows. And the Levi, those days the Levites, the Levites had no one to look after them. They would have no portion of the land. And they were poor, basically. And they would live on the master, they would live on tithes. And obviously poor people. So we have four kinds of people a person could invite. Rambam says a person does not have any guests in the house, which are needy for Yom Tov. It's not Simcha of Yom Tov. It's a Simcha of their betin. It's Simcha of their stomachs. They're not really celebrating Yom Tov. They're celebrating their own stomachs. So it's very important to have if you can. Today it's, it's a tough time to have guests in your house. 
But when things are better, Bezrat Hashem, make sure, try and invite a widow. If you can't find a widow, try and invite an orphan. If you can't find an orphan, try and invite a poor person to your house, someone who doesn't have family so to celebrate with, and they'll appreciate some company. Bezrat Hashem will all be worthy of having that guest. That's why we start off the Haggadah with a very noble line. It's fantastic. This is a, a nobility of Judaism. If you need, if you're in need, come to my house, come over, have enjoyed Pesach with me. Enjoy Pesach with me. I'll provide you. I'll provide you all your needs. Call the Tzrich, whatever you need. Come and have Pesach with me. Imagine. And then we say, so we have different phrases here. Number one, we say, call the whoever is hungry, come and eat. And then call the Tzrich, whoever is needy, I'll provide for you. There's hungry and there's needy. And then we say, now we are here. Now we're here. We're talking to refugees. A refugee has, is new in the country. He says, now we're here. But next year, we're moving to Israel. In other words, we're all refugees. You're a refugee. You think you're alone? We're all refugees. In this country, we're all refugees. Now we're here. Next year, we're going to be in Yerushalayim. So we're encouraging even the refugees. We're encouraging the poor people. We're encouraging people who have needs, who are not poor. We're encouraging people who are refugees. They may have their needs, but they feel bad. They feel low self-esteem. And next year, we're all going to be free in our land in Yushalayim. There's Rad Hashem. All of us will see this, Baruch Hashem. At least we're here. Those of us who are here, we're here. We're in Yushalayim. All we need now is see Yushalayim, Habenu the rebuilt Yushalayim, the days of Mashiach. There's Rad Hashem. All of us will see it and we'll be successful in keeping our generations together, our future generations, as uh, full-fledged Jews, married Jews, and have Jewish children. There's Rad Hashem. We'll continue our generation. Every day we have to pray. We and our children, our children's children, will all know your name, Hashem. Hashem will be successful by passing down the torch on set. And now it's interesting. How do we pass down the torch to children? How do you educate children? So I remember when I was, a, when I was in Highland Park, when our kids were young, we would go to Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, there's a beautiful museum. There are actually two good museums in the center of Philadelphia. One of them is called the Please Touch Museum. Please touch museum. How do you teach children? What's the most effective way to teach children? And the answer is when you have props. We teach children, number one is by making them ask questions, get them interested to ask questions, open up their intelligence, open up their curiosity. That's number one. And number two is to teach them when you have props on the table. So we have to realize the rabbis was brilliant and the Torah is brilliant and Hashem is even more brilliant. Hashem says, Right? It's a time you, you say the Haggadah when you have the Matzah Maror in front of you. Why? Because then the children can see this is what our forefathers ate in Egypt. This is the same bread. This is the props we have in, our, in front of us. It's a please touch museum. Touch the bread. Feel the bread. Taste the bread. This is the bread of slavery. This is the bread of redemption. We have it right here. And now you want, I want you to taste the slavery. I want you to taste the bitterness of slavery. So the question is now, why do we dip in the harosim? There's a whole big discussion in the Gemara. Um, it's actually a Mishnah in Sahim. If uh, harosim is a mitzvah or not a mitzvah. So there's one opinion that says harosim is a mitzvah. Rambam seems to say, you say a bracha on harosim, he changes his mind. But uh, according to one opinion, there's a bracha on harosim. So why is harosim a mitzvah? Harosim is pretty good. Harosim is pretty sweet. So Tosfot says amazing thing. Says harosit should be made of the same ingredients that are mentioned in the Torah in Shir Hashirim. All the fruits in Shir Hashirim, in Song of Songs of King Solomon, 
should be in this in this uh, in this mixture of harose. And the Ashkenazim already fulfilled this very well. They put all the different kinds of fruits which are in the shirashim in this mixture concoction of harose. And harose is pretty sweet. So why did we take the maro, which is bitterness, exile, which is bitterness, and put it in the sweetness? And the answer is, if you think exile is totally bitter, for those who are still in exile, it's not, obviously not. The harosin in the exile, there's sweetness in exile as well. Unfortunately, the malls are full. There's a lot of, I don't know now, but when I was there, it was full, and there was a lot of materialism, and the pay, wages are much higher, and so on, so on, and so forth. And so there's haroset in galut. There's also sweetness in hard work. People don't realize that. When you work hard and you have a goal, a mission, there's a lot of sweetness. So that's the, there's haroset in the maror. We mix the harot. So it's not just bitterness on life. As we said, there's a sandwich. It's a sandwich of good, sandwich of bad. Even exile has some goodness inside it. And even uh, hard work has some sweetness inside it. Okay, we're going to stop here. And I wish you all a very kosher hug sameach. And Bezrat Hashem. And uh, so I just want to give you some of the fruits in Shira Shirim. So we all know that the Egoz, which is the walnuts, and Tachara Tapuach or Articha, the famous Pasuk, it says the, the uh, women in Egypt, they kept their husbands going, procreating by going under apple trees and seducing their husbands, Baruch Hashem. And that's why their mirrors were considered holy enough to make the Kior in the Beit HaMikdash, make the the wash station, the bread, you have apples, you have pomegranates, you have uh, walnuts. And uh, the, it also says to add some, some straw because it also symbolizes the bricks, the cement and bricks. And but there's a lot of different uh, spices, uh, cinnamon and other things that go into the haroset wine. So uh, I, everyone has different customs. We have different customs as well. We don't actually follow the Ashkenazi opinion. But there's different opinions on how to make haroset. But I'm going to end off on a sweet note. I wish you all a very sweet Pesach. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.